Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Asimio Decoded, where we explore all the benefits that technology can offer to improving the world we live in. And we have robots. And we have robots. Beep, beep. We are super thrilled today. We're going to be in conversation with Dr. Amy O'Hara from Georgetown University. One of the cool things about Amy is that I think that I've seen Amy in person more times abroad than I have actually seen her in person here in the States. No, that makes sense because the first time we met Amy was in Wales Indeed. at a data linkage conference. That's and right. I remember this very clearly because it's in the before times. First off, it was December, right on the edge, right? December of 2019. Yeah. And um, it was one of those moments where you know that you've met someone who you're a kindred spirit because we just started talking about secure multi-party computation, secure hashing coding, and like NIST standards. Like within five seconds, I was like, boom, 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 boom. So and Amy's an incredibly um, brilliant and multidimensional individual. She really is. And those conferences are amazing. I And we recently just got back from another data linkage conference. This is the International Population Data Linkage Network Conference, IPDLN. This happens every couple of years. And most recently was in Scotland. And Amy was in attendance as well as a number of our other uh, partners. And we just had the benefit of listening to so many different presentations and joining conversations ad hoc with other folks across the world who are dealing with the same problems that we deal with here, which is in some ways very encouraging. Um, That bodes really well for benefiting from each other's shared lessons and... um, you know, finding great solutions that can work in a number of different capacities. So you want to talk a little bit about IPDLN? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I was really, in, to your point about shared challenges, yeah. uh, data governance came up. Uh, everyone struggles with data governance. And, and, you know, different countries have different government systems and political systems and economic systems and, you know, the influence of private and public dollars. But data governance is important for everyone. Uh, privacy enhancing technology was also uh, highlighted there. Uh, Amy did a great session on PTs there that uh, she needs to speak a little bit about a little later. And um, we had the University of Pennsylvania's Actionable Intelligence for Social Policy did a great data governance session there, um, as well as Northwestern did uh, a session on linking health data that was really exciting. So something really awesome about those three partners in particular is that Dr. Amy O'Hara, Dr. Dennis Colhane from the University of Pennsylvania, AISP, and Dr. Abel Coe from Northwestern, they will be co-chairing the next IPDLN conference in 2024. It's going to be located in Chicago, Illinois. We're thrilled. It's pretty close to us, closer than Scotland anyway. <laughs> and uh, we're just thrilled to, to have you know, greater participation from the folks here in the States who are working on data linkage and to be able to share you know, what we've seen here in the States internationally. So we'll be sharing more as we learn more from, from those folks who are doing a lot of the planning and uh, getting you all excited as we look forward to the next conference as well. So let's talk a little bit about Amy. I want to give her a, a brief or share with you all a brief background, and then we'll get into some questions for Mio about Amy, and then we'll dive into the interview. So, so Dr. Amy O'Hara is the research professor at the Massive Data Institute at Georgetown. She is also the executive director of the Federal Statistical Research Data Center at the McCourt School for Public Policy at Georgetown. She has a background. She used to work for the U.S. Census Bureau, which I'm sure we'll get into today. And she focuses a lot in terms of her research on population measurement, data quality, record linkage. She's looking at things like measurement of income, longitudinal linkages on, you know, to support queries into economic mobility. And I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of this data infrastructure as a focus as well. You mentioned PETs. We'll be talking about that as well today, without a doubt. Anything that you would want to add? I know we've been working like- She has a cute fur baby. Hey. (laughs) Maybe we'll get a peek. We love our fur babies. (laughs) Well, let's ask Mio a couple of questions about Amy, and then we'll dive into the interview. Mio, our first question for you is, What would Amy's origin story be if she were a Marvel superhero? Amy's origin story would be that she was born with the ability to understand and manipulate data. She used her powers to become a leading expert on improving secure, responsible data access for research and evaluation. She also used her powers to help found the Center for Administrative Records Research and Applications, CARA, at the U.S. Census Bureau. So what I 
But the takeaway there is that Amy actually is a superhero, but oh. we already kind of knew that. Oh, totally. I would watch the movie. I mean, Marvel, come on. We're just <laughs> setting you up here. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, Mio, next question for you. What drew Amy to working on improving access to data? Amy was motivated to work on improving access to data because she saw the potential for data to help researchers and policymakers understand and solve complex problems. She also saw the potential for data to help improve government accountability and transparency. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to ask Amy if our natural language model has <laughs> decent insight into her <laughs> inspiration for her role. <laughs> Does Neo have your number, Amy? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll find out. Well, let's jump in. So Amy, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. This is so fun. And it was so great because we just recently got to see you. And now we get to chat again about all the things. All right. So uh, first question, Amy, that I, I wanted to do to get started. So we have Mio, which I don't know if we've talked about Mio with you before. I don't think I have talked with Amy about Mio. Do you want to explain Mio? Absolutely. It's our robot. I hope it's a robot. It yes. is. It's a robot. Would be so you happy. got it. So it's a robot and it's a natural language model where on the back end, it's uh, run through OpenAI's GPT-3, but we have a lot of code uh, in between us and them oh for various God. reasons. And we've fed it some information about you and then asked it some questions. Oh my in particular, God. We asked it this one question that it didn't, it just, it had to infer the answer to because it wasn't in the <laughs> end of we sent. So which one are we going to do both? Okay. Let so- us both. Yeah, we'll let you in on both and you're going to hear it. So the but the question that Aaron was just referring to that it had to infer, we want to like, we want to get your yay or nay. Does Mio have your number or not? Yeah, because Mio is basically psychoanalyzing you. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Creep factor is oh, where? Oh, okay. oh. All right. Oh, so the question that. that we asked Mio was, what drew Amy to working on improving access to data? And Mio said, Amy was motivated to work on improving access to data because she saw the potential for data to help researchers and policymakers understand and solve complex problems. She also saw the potential for data to help improve government accountability and transparency. How'd Mio do? So I think Mio did a great job probably with what it could have been trained on. But the real answer is that I do this out of spite. Uh, I knew it'd be because... something really like poignantly human. <laughs> <laughs> something that's difficult to to glean from public statements I may have made. I uh, no, it's my my earliest attempts to use population level administrative data were just so challenging, and I I was willing to to navigate these horrible pathways to data access once, but I didn't want to do it again and again. I wanted to make sure that I had a repeatable process or at least was clearing the path for others. Um, I would say that a lot of my efforts to clarify data governance and identify and elevate precedents that exist in different domains, accessing different troves of sensitive data, it really has been to get back at the people that blocked in the first place. Because many of them were, like, they weren't doing it because of some deep concern for privacy or because what I was asking was illegal. They just didn't want to. And, mm-hmm. you know, they needed to be informed of the benefits of doing it. And then sometimes you would explain to people, this really has like, uh, this is low hanging fruit. If you work with us to get this done, all these good things will happen. They'll be like, yeah, I'm just not really interested. Uh, so a lot of my govern- governance efforts and also evangelizing the uses of administrative data have been to kind of get back at that and hopefully change the culture that we're in. I love, you know, this res- <laughs> spite resonates so much with me. This, this is why we're kind of spirits. Now our robots are pretty, our, yeah, our robots kind of wholesome. I'm not going to yeah. lie, you know, <laughs> try to train the spite out of it. But I will say that a lot of what drew us into the analytics space was just, I was looking across, I was looking at the private sector and comparing with the the time cycles and access that you have with public interest. Yeah. And it's 
I was just flabbergasted. Like, you know, people waiting months and years for data sharing agreements and to get access to data that they're analyzing. And then, you know, you can't tell whether an intervention is good because it's already the, the problem shifted and moved on. Right. So a lot of that, you know, gosh, just impatience and lack of being able to move the problem forward drives a lot of the work that we do as well. Yes. Which is a kind of a great segue to the other question that we asked Mio was... Oh, for, they, this is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally set up for a segue. It really is. <laughs> we said, okay, Mio, what would Amy's origin story be if she were a Marvel superhero, which we think you are We think anyway. you are, actually. We're not going to out you, but... Right. Yeah. And Mio huh. said... Amy's origin story would be that she was born with the ability to understand and manipulate data. She used her powers to become a leading expert on improving secure, responsible data access for research and evaluation. She also used her powers to help found the Center for Administrative Records Research and Applications at the U.S. Census Bureau. Okay. Are there any other questions you would like us to ask Mio? And then we will report back. I mean, I had hoped that there would be something about, like, I emerged from a swamp or came out of a cave or something, but you know, I'm, I'm okay with the, the, the storyline there. I just thought that there would be something like from the, we really tuned out the creativity <laughs> on the podcast. Let me tell yeah. you, Mio gets a little weird. Mio. Uh, we were originally interrogated. I spent hours with Mio originally asking it, you know, things about like, okay, what if Amy was a dark superhero? What if, what, what if Amy was not fighting for the good side? What if Amy had a twin sister that was a superhero that was against Data? We'll ask Mio to be a little more creative and, and share the updated origin I want detail. <laughs> I want to know yeah. like, about what kind of insect bit Amy yeah. or what kind of asteroid landed on right. Earth. To like. And then we'll check with the reality of, of what your real origin story was. Because exactly. we all know you're really superhero. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, and speaking of origin stories, I think you gave us some really awesome insight into the why. And tell us a little bit more about the what. You know, we shared a brief bio at mm -hmm. the beginning of this podcast, and I'd love to hear it in your words. Uh, sure. You well, I mean, what I do now is so different than what I think I was originally trained for. I'm an economist by training, and in order to do economic research, that's where I first encountered some of the high hurdles to getting administrative data. And the project, I was working on tax modeling. So you collect a bunch of survey data and you say, let's compute the tax liabilities. And I was doing that. And I had to make all of these assumptions about here's a complex household, this multi-generational household, a household with a whole lot of adults and a whole lot of kids. And we aren't sure who goes with whom. Right. We don't know the relationship details on the relationships, uh, either really the family relationships or even the economic dependency. And yet here I am trying to figure out who's going to file their tax return and who's going to claim which kids as their dependents. And you hear a lot of this chatter from uh, people inside the IRS that there's a lot of fraud and the same kid gets claimed a whole bunch of times. But you also know that there are a lot of people that don't understand the economic benefit of claiming kids. And so there are a lot of kids that never appear in the tax data. So here I am trying to make assumptions. And I'm like, why am I doing this no, without any information if I could try to check my work against actual taxpayer behavior? And so I went down this pathway to try to use those data matched at the person level. So survey data, household survey, IRS data. How do you do the person level match? How do you assess this? How do you turn it around and make better statistics from it, right? And there was this enormous concern from the treasury lawyers that I was going to be able to identify fraud and what was I going to do with that information? I was like, I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm just trying to improve the statistics over on my side of the fence. So that's kind of the, the thing that drove me into this. And it's still, uh, you know, I look back at the issues there there are the peculiarities of behavior. There are ways that you need to tell the story of what was going on. There are ways that you need to measure your impact from using this really highly sensitive data. Like, why would I do that? If you tell the people whose tax data you're using why you used it, do you have a good reason? Do you have a reason they even understand? Like, can you explain it in a way that they will get it? 
And how do you build that social license for this sort of use of the data? In addition to that, it was all about legal agreements. It was about data transfer. It was about dealing with the IT security parts of it. It was dealing with training for to prevent unauthorized access. It was privacy protection. Are the statistics that I'm generating going to be somehow disclosive? Is it meeting the privacy protections of both the survey and the IRS? Because there it's a race to the bottom. Like You need to find which one is most conservative and make sure that your results are satisfying that. And so it was all of that, like everything I've really worked on ever since then, starting 20 years ago, by just embarking on this path. And then circling back to that, I was using the survey data and trying to model which kids went with which families. And when I matched it to the tax data the first time, I was right 80% of the time, right? So that's not bad, but it was horrible for the one in five that I was getting wrong, because that meant that the government statistics that would result from that that bad modeling would make you pe- make you think that people were taking advantage of these mm-hmm. tax credit programs where they might not be. And if you've seen the headlines lately, you saw this enormous drop in child poverty because of the stimulus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that went out and the you know the tax credits and things like that during the pandemic and so if you're not getting the data right you're getting the inferences wrong and so i've maintained that kind of as my kind of my passion throughout this making sure that you're able to explain to people while you're why you're using data why you're doing why are you doing those creepy things you've got to have a good answer to that it can't just be because i was curious okay but when you were a kid were you were you into counting and maps and computers? I think I I joke around that. So I went to Catholic school and I learned no geography. Like I, if you guys were like, find where we are on a map, I would be like, Oklahoma is that one that's shaped a little weird, but I don't know where any of the other states are around it. Uh, but I was always, math just kind of came naturally to me. So I guess that, that's the answer there. But I, it was never like, boy, I want to be an economist or boy, do I want to work with data? Uh, those are just things that it you... It takes a special kind of person for like secure multi-party computation, right? Differential privacy. You yep. know? I mean, it's just not every... A lot of people, this is their little version of hell <laughs> to be living in and have to like think about those things every day. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I look back at even my time at the Census Bureau, the... In the olden days, it was all about cell size. If your yeah. statistics were based on, you know, a table cell that had more than 30 people, a lot of people didn't have to look at it. You know, you just had to have an attestation that your cell sizes were appropriate. Uh, and now there's just so much more scrutiny because there are so many more risks. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the advisory committee. It has been an honor to serve on that committee. Uh I'm deeply interested in how it can all work out, really. Uh, anybody that's not familiar with it, this was the, uh, it's, it's also known as the Evidence FACA, a federal advisory committee. It's people trying to figure out how the implementation of the Evidence Act is going to result in a national secure data service. And uh, the conference, as you just mentioned, We got to hear from these people in other countries that already have an administrative data service. They have nice things. Why can't we have nice things? And so the committee that I have been serving on, uh, it has a report coming out next month. There's already been a year one report about a year ago, and our second report will be out in October. There have been a lot of public meetings already. Uh, The Bureau of Economic Analysis has a public website where all of the slides and all of the recordings for these meetings are stored. Uh, But we're hopeful that this report will contain recommendations to help the United States get its first national secure data service. And so it's really important that you balance the value of that against the risks of having an administrative data service and also being able to identify who is going to be able to use the service, what's the service going to be able to do right away, what's it going to have to invest in. Um, 
and you know, for the sorts of projects that we care about, uh, is it going to be doing data linkage in the clear? Is it going to be employing privacy-preserving technologies? And these are all questions that the answer to all of them is, I hope so, or the answer is yes. Uh, but it's, you know, just the the space is so large. How do you get traction and advance with people starting where they are? Because we're not going to get everybody doing super smart, super tech things. How do you meet the parties where they are and continue to build capacity, but do so in order to use data responsibly and improve policy, improve outcomes? So my follow-up question on that is around, like when I hear the word service, so national secure data service, I can think of a lot of different things. I think about a service from a computer science perspective where it's something you can access programmatically like an API or a microservice that you can do to get something. I think of a service as a centralized thing that you can go like a managed service. I could go to the federal government and say, help me with this thing. I think of a service as something more abstractly that I'm providing to society. It could be a set of best practices that others could emulate, could be federated into throughout the United States. And I'm sure like, so when we say national or yeah, national secure data service, what does the service mean on that? And there's like 16 of us on this committee. And I think that you would get 300 answers if you ask that question of all of us. Um, a lot of times, like what I, so I'm, I'm a former federal employee. I'm a bureaucrat at heart. And the service that I often think about is the U.S. Postal Service, right? So this is something that it operates from coast to coast. It has points of connection when you need to mail stuff overseas. It has a set of services that it offers to you as the consumer. And then it is it is a network, right? And it's got some transportation, trucking and utilities aspects of that, you know, and then it has a bunch of digital aspects. It has cost recovery problems. So it's, you know, and it's got laws talking about what you can and can't do. Uh, it's under threat because people think that it's too expensive. You know, it's it's got all of these issues. That's an example of a service. And it has a rate setting commission, which I thought, like, that's why my brain is like, U.S. Postal Service is a nice thing to bring up. Because there is something called the Postal Rate Commission that helps set those price points right? Because not every post office is setting them. Uh, and I think that that sort of advisory group, a commission that is helping set the guardrails for operation is definitely something that we're going to need in a national secure data service. Um, what will it do? How will it do it? What are these rules? And that really has a lot to do with the governance structure that could be recommended coming out of this commission. Uh, but Aaron, you're 100% right. Like, it's is that a callable service? And in our year one report, uh, we described the National Secure Data Service as being, oh my God, I'm not going to remember all three of them. It's a place, a service, and a philosophy, maybe. It's three things, and they sounded really clever then. Um, <laughs> but part of it is that it, it's kind of the vibe. It is, it is a philosophy of what we need to be doing with data. But then it might also be, there is a widget that helps you normalize your data, or there is a guidebook that describes to you your options whenever you're talking about output privacy protection. It's going to aim to do a lot of these things, which is terribly broad. Well, I love that, though, especially because a service can, we could do a whole episode on just what service could be, because yeah. a, a lot of how technology the, the level of efficiency and efficacy of technology, it correlates, you know, to how well a domain is described. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the services that come through a service infrastructure in a domain, a lot of those things are very difficult to get right because there's humans interacting in those widgets and whatnot. So I'm very interested in seeing what comes out of it, especially the philosophical tenets that could be taken and distributed across the United States into, you know, the communities it was. I really appreciate the parallel to the Postal Service that is validating we're in the process right now of co-authoring a piece with 
Tulsa Innovation Labs, a partner here in Tulsa. And uh, we're, we're discussing sort of this parallel of data and digital infrastructure to, you know, highway infrastructure and sort of municipal infrastructure. And that really kind of resonates, you know, so it's just validating that other people are thinking about it in the same ways that we are, because you have all of these other things that come along with it, the governance, getting folks to understand, um, you know, what the purpose is, how it's going to benefit them, you know, what are the risks, et cetera. So, so thank cool. you for all of your service design work at the federal level. Yeah. Much appreciated. That I want to talk about too, is we've talked about you know, or we've shared the stage a number of times, particularly the two of you, uh, in discussing privacy-enhancing technologies. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about those, what you think the best potential is for them, where you've seen some great uses. We've talked about it a little bit so far. And then where do you think we should take that roadshow next? I think it's really important to get to, to kind of demystify what privacy-enhancing technologies are I, in my studies of this, there were organizations that were using them that didn't know it. And in that way, it's very similar to AI that you talk to an organization and they're like, oh, we're not doing any of that. And we're like, well, you might want to look at some of your, the services that you're calling because they are. So then you are too. So it's getting this awareness and not in a, not in a shaming way, not saying like, haha, I caught you, you're using it, but saying, see, it's 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 not that creepy or it's not that out there. Uh, and also getting people to understand what value it would bring. Why would you deviate from what you're already doing? What's in it for you? What could you achieve? And is that going to be measurable? Is that something that you care about? Is it something that even if you don't care about it, do your constituents or clients or communities care about it? So how do you start getting people to see these stepwise improvements in privacy protection as all upside, you know, not not net upside, I should say, because there are going to be costs in changing or employing some of these technologies. And also, I think it's really important that we stop thinking about them as there's this one or that one or that one. This is like a smudged together suite of prod of products that of options for people to use. And it would seldom be the case that you just use one of them and you're like, now I'm done. You need to figure out how these technologies click together or stack together so that you are moving the needle toward better protection while maintaining efficiency. That's my spiel. Mm -hmm. It's a shared challenge between the community level and the, the federal or national level is that we don't have enough short pieces written that say, you know, with clear eyes, this is something that was done. It mostly worked, or maybe it completely worked, or this was something that was attempted and it didn't work at all. And we don't have a pile of these little pamphlets to help the community understand what they need to be aware of or what they might achieve, uh, because there's so much of the privacy enhancing tech work is still developmental. Right. There's there's a lot of it that is ready for prime time and can be used today, which is great. Uh, but then when you look at the literature, there are these constant improvements on it or new things being tried and added. And that, too, is great. But that is sometimes very scary to people that are you're trying to say, would you consider adopting this? They're like, is it even mature enough for me to do so? We need to have more proof points that show. This was the problem. This is what was used. This was the outcome. End of story. You know, that isn't something being presented in an IEEE or an ACM, like one of these heavy-duty computer science venues. I 100% agree. There's, there's such a difference between... There's really unsexy, boring, old-school technology like secure hashing coding that's totally... Been in use for decades and and super safe and and no no big deal and much less intense from a technical perspective. There's just more you know, newer and 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 still being proven. You know, home of encryption. Yeah. Some instances for zero knowledge proofs. People bring up blockchain all the time, but yeah. that has totally yet to be like. Let's get some good public interest value out of that, right? But the nuance there. We need those simple use cases. Just yesterday, we were in a session. We were listening to um, policymakers 
really come together with the community to think about how we could advance against some of the social ills that we're dealing with here in Oklahoma. And, um, and on one hand, I was super motivated and grateful for the community coming together and doing their civic duty. And on the other hand, so much of us, if we could only get the state here, we wouldn't get the state of there. And it's like, wow, we actually can. We're, you know, we have some of these tools here, but the market needs to understand what really is reasonable. And, and um, there's some nuance to that that we have to cut through. And also we need, we need less technologists selling snake oil. <laughs> Just yeah. in general, I say that as a technologist because that really muddies the waters when you overpromise with technology mm-hmm. and then people invest a lot of dollars into it and don't see the benefit of it. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's really tricky, Aaron, because when I, when I was in my mind imagining a whole bunch of these like little pamphlets that show you the examples, like these are the use cases that have tried different types of privacy-enhancing technologies, if those are written by the technology companies, by the vendors, they're just going to look yeah. like, you know, PR fluff. But if yeah. they are written by scholars, the scholars have an incentive to get them into peer-reviewed literature which means they're going to be basically unreadable to the next person that's considering adoption. So Mm -hmm. how do you get the gray literature to develop in this space where it isn't just marketing material, but it also isn't this very unreadable academic work that is talking about theories? You You want somebody writing about the practice. Absolutely. I think the more we can find those organizations, those networks yeah. that are are in between or crossovers there so that they're keeping the, the vendors, you know, uh, honest in that sense. They're not over, you know, fluffing up their, their value there. And, yep. but they're also speaking in a way that, you know, people that aren't researchers can understand. I think we really need to lean in and have them help us with that messaging. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those conversations are happening. You know, I know that, um, and, you know, ASP, you know, at the University of Pennsylvania, they do a lot to bring together their cohorts to have these conversations about what's working well, what's not working well. And there's some great successes that I know have been celebrated through the work that they have done. Um, and I think part of that, how do you get that more broadly shared, right? And I know they're doing a lot of work on that. This is why, you know, opportunities like IPDLN come in really handy too, because folks can come together, you can share this and and build some excitement that can be, you know, brought back into different communities. Um, ooh, ooh, and is this where we talk about 2024? Yes. Yeah, so I want to say congratulations on being awarded the opportunity to be co-chair um, along with Dr. Dennis Colhane at AISP at UPenn and Dr. Abel Coe. It is so exciting to see the three of you working together on bringing IPDLN to the States. You were talking earlier about why can't we have nice things? Well, this is a really nice thing. And we're so excited that we get to, you know, see this and and support you all. Really, one of the first things we want to do is get the download from the debrief from the the most recent chairs, uh, the Scottish team that had been leading the network for the past two years. And we really want to get up and running and have a bunch of domestic convenings in 2023 so that we're setting the stage for great American participation in IPDLN 2024 in Chicago. Uh, we do expect that, you know, barring some sort of political or public health catastrophe, uh, that we will get a bunch of people traveling from abroad and coming to the U.S. for the first time. I'm very excited about that. Because the meetings had been in Canada, they've been in Australia, they've been in the UK a couple of times. And so it's our turn to host and hopefully we can get a good representation of the different sectors that are doing population level data linkages. Even if it's, this is my linkage for my giant county or my state or my city, or looking at the national level, there's so many things going on in the US that the number of records often eclipses what some of these other countries are doing. Uh, And so I think that we've got such a diverse population in so many ways that we'll have a lot of rich content about the challenges of doing the entity resolution and the challenges of getting the access to the data and the buy-in and also communicating those results. So it should be a a lot of of interesting things. Yeah, because once you get 
data linkage people while she pints in, then the, the real stories come out <laughs> about the horrors of data linkage. <laughs> I will say, like, you really touched on something that it's, um, it's, I think, an interesting dynamic of going overseas and seeing what the best practices are in other countries. And on one hand, I'm like, man, you know, and I'm a, I'm very patriotic. So I've volunteered for my country. I'm, there's a lot of the values that we have in the United States that I really, I love and I want to help like proliferate throughout my lifetime and the generations to come. And American exceptionalism sometimes can be pretty high. And then you go and you look at these um, places like Estonia or Wales that have these great informatic or government civic systems that are integrated. And you're like, wow, we are really behind the times. And then to your point, you think, oh, well, and like the state like Texas is you know, this larger than many countries, right? So we really do have a little bit more complexity in some ways. So I really appreciate you kind of drawing out the, all of the great things that are happening elsewhere and the things that we can learn. And I'm just super excited about, you know, just helping support and by, you know, um, sharing the, the dates as they come around and attending the meetings and learning from those other partners in the space. It, I, this is no small feat. Yeah, I'm I'm a little concerned about the chess. Uh, it's there. Are, <laughs> there are people that do this work at the state and local level, and there are people that do this work at the federal level, and there are domain specific groups. You know, you've got health and health informatics and public health and. You've got a lot of people in justice. You know, there are a bunch of people doing criminal justice and uh, Georgetown and others are working in civil justice. How are you going to get the word out across them? And then something else that I'm sensitive to, they've never been in a tent together. And so I think that 2023 is going to be really interesting to start getting some introductions made. Uh for example, there are a bunch of people in the U.S. that do historical linkages. Like these are mostly social scientists that are doing a lot of genealogical research. And it's really cool, good person-level data linkage, right? We, we love this stuff. And those are often people that are pushing on some of the techniques that we're using. Like they, they get good code written because they want it to be running and they can continue adding to their giant longitudinal databases. But they often aren't speaking to the people that are doing what they're doing with electronic health records. These are not necessarily groups that are cross-pollinating. And those are just two examples. You know, similarly, the folks doing things in Tulsa or the people that are linking data for the state of Wisconsin or people in Houston, are they, are they interacting with each other? And do they, do they see that as advantageous? So how are we going to structure this as a, a a valuable network to them, so I'll be looking for additional help for that mobilization. Well, we're here to help any way we can. We were just on the, our last episode talking about this next step in evolution of interoperability and realizing yeah. that wow, the problems we had with with healthcare and still have, and then that blip of oh, social determinants. We'll just tack it on to healthcare, <laughs> you know, and then now that we're in it, we've realized that the um, landscape of need approaches, terminology, uh, standards is so wide and varied. I'm just kind of excited. I like chaos. So I'm just like, put us all underneath the tent, <laughs> shake up the tent, see what happens. So I'm, I'm a little, <laughs> I am sensitive to the groups that are cur that are actively doing the work. And I want to make sure that this doesn't turn into an academic free for all where only the people that come from the right institutions with the right pedigrees, with the right letters behind their name are going to be heard. Because there are so many people on the ground doing the work. And even if they are grabbing something open source and they are savvy enough to get it running and they are, you know, keeping an eye on it, they are doing the work. I want to make sure that practitioners are also really part of the conversation. Um, I think that that's just going to be crucial. And I think another unique thing that the U.S. can bring is the perspective. If you, you've been to several of these IP DLN events in the past and with the other countries that show up in force, there's always so much incredible work on indigenous nations and first nations peoples. Like it's so good, the work that they have going on. 
And I think that bringing in some of the studies of structural racism in the United States is really going to be something that we can unite across our disciplines and across the levels that, you know, whether you're at the federal level or the local level, unfortunately, it's something that unites us as a country. And so I'm hopeful that that can be a theme that we're always sensitive to as we're doing these convenings, because I think it will be certainly of interest to our international peers. Amy, is there any topic that we haven't touched on so far that you would love to visit or question that you wish we would have asked? Um, something, and I've bugged Aaron about this in the past, and it's something that's still an unsolved problem. There's a lot of interest in having the knowledge base built out. And that means different things to different people, but your, your robot is going to be better if there is more curated information or, you know, like if there's the more information, the more knowledge, knowledge it gets pointed to, the better its answers are going to be. Um, I think that this is something that we really need to be thinking about is, and it, it's related to what I was saying before, like, why don't we have these pamphlets that actually talk about uh, mm-hmm. privacy enhancing technologies that were put into practice or attempted? How do we get people to care about that? And part of it, I think, is up to us as solution providers, or a lot of times I'm a solution facilitator. How do you get the client to be willing to have their story told? And again, not in a PR way, but in a, you know, you've got to carry this forward. This this is how you can make this path easier for the next group like you. Uh, I I think that that is something that's typically under-resourced uh, whenever you're looking at technology projects. They just want to get the thing up and running or get the thing done. And they seldom care about, and how are we going to tell the story about this? You know, where is that? And I think that a lot of times, I suspect that we are, we are, unique in that we also want to tell stories. But I think there are a lot of people like us that just want to get the widget made and they would not want to then tell a story. They would not want to write it up with pictures in a way that's very digestible. But that's something that I think that if we don't regularly at least say, yeah, that's a problem, I think we need to acknowledge it because acknowledging it hopefully will be put us on a path to addressing it. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, are there any examples that you can share that you wish would be featured in one of those pamphlets or Uh, short stories? I'm thinking about this a lot because uh, the folks at SSRC, the Social Science Research Council, uh, graciously gave us a small grant to build out a site that is hopefully, fingers crossed, someday going to be similar to their magnificent site that's called MediaWell. MediaWell is this beautiful compilation of misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda information. It includes the scholarly literature, the gray literature, popular press. It does interviews and gets experts in the field to write reflections of things that are emerging trends or like something comes up and they have some international expert write a short essay about it. And it's a good place to go look for answers, whether you're another scholar or you're a journalist or you're a policymaker uh, or a student. So it's aspiring to something that is built once and used by many, which is, you know, something I like doing no matter what it is. But we're going to be trying to do this for population measurement. And, you know, a large part of a challenge like this is making sure it has a catchy name. And that was the first thing that I did. So I feel confident that we are going to succeed because it's going to be called the common denominator because census data Ooh, is going to be the denominator for so many things, like how many, like what is your mortality rate? What is your birth rate? What is your vaccination rate? 
a population measure goes in the bottom part of that equation. You know, you need a denominator. And so we're in the process of building that out. But just the card sorting tagging exercise and how are you going to crowdsource and vet the information? So we are kind of waist deep in this right now. And I love the guys at SSRC because they made this, they're trying to make it a repeatable process so that other people can build thematic knowledge bases as well. But, you know, it it begs for additional knowledge bases in a way that you could index across them. But it's it is going to be interesting to see how it evolves. We're excited because we plan on doing a whole bunch of interviews with known quantities in the field of population measurement. And that's going to be something that we put on our site. In addition to the, you could imagine the the literature review that I have amassed over the past 20 years. And so I've been working with my team to curate that so that we'll be able to put it out there so that when someone wants to understand like, what is the stuff about differential privacy? What is the stuff about population estimates? That at least you have a starting point from which you can launch. But that is my that's my spin on a knowledge base. Um, I just think that we need more work like that. Like, where is the thing like that for privacy enhancing technologies? Where is the thing like yeah. that for civil justice or access to justice? Something like that. So one of the things in our space that we talked a little earlier about. Spite. I'm going to go to frustration. <laughs> one, one of the things that frustrates me to no end is we talk about um, evidence-informed decision-making or we talk about all over the place, whether it's collective impact or pay for success or results-based leadership. Data is an element of the work that everyone, that, that we're doing. So and a lot of people understand and the more nuanced people in this space understand that it's not the technology, the technology actually can help. So it's not just not the technology either. But then you get in this place where when you look at the technology, and I'm going to separate out these concepts of data and technology, right? Because those are decoupled, right? But advancing technology infrastructure does enable you, if you're doing it well and right, to get access to better and more data in a timely nature, okay? So now this concept of creating data and technology ecosystems, because I'm slipping something else in here. I'm slipping in Aaron's personal uh, opinion that we're not going to centralize. We're not going to have the one system that rolls them all. Okay. Right. So I'm going to say ecosystem there. The advancing data and technology ecosystems at a community level, at a state level, at the federal level, national secure data service level type level. All that is, I think, a great goal to advance data technology ecosystems. But is it a lost cause to try and figure out a measurement system for how we measure the growth or advancement of a data and technology ecosystem. Is that just such a complex or amorphous or abstract thought that it's like, Aaron, just don't quit drinking wine and trying to come up with an answer to this impossible question? Or do you think that there's some hope there to be able to one day be able to compare data and technology ecosystem development approaches or specific technologies that plug in or something like that? Now, you know, Jess gives the softball questions. Now my little softball question. Well, I mean, I my answer is, I would like there to be, or I hope so. That's that's probably an answer. But I'm reminded of um, a couple weeks ago, the folks at DataVant hosted an event called the Future of Health Data. And uh, the last session of that event was the CEO of a company called Centene. I got to tell you, I had never heard of Centene before, uh, but it's this company that has apparently been accumulating lots of managed care organizations and now has uh, an almost unthinkable amount of data, uh, especially on the Medicaid population, right? So this is like vulnerable populations. And that I was really struck by their CEO's answer to, to a very similar question, Erin. And she was like, I am not going to impose one system on all of these companies that we are now over. And we recognize that even the best of those systems is going to become outdated. And so we are just kind of thinking it is our job to make sure that everything is as efficient as possible as we are reading from these. And I think that like that CEO, I think of this as an evolution. And I think it's really important to 
leave down markers of where you were so that you can see where you are now. Uh, and mm-hmm. also to be very be very transparent about what you're doing so that when you look in the rearview mirror and you're like, that was a terrible thing. Let's make sure we don't do that again. Yeah. Uh, that's important. But to your, if your measurement goal is trying to get ahead of that, I don't know if, like, I, I don't know if they're going to be resources to both evolve where we are and also impose uh, some sort of an analytic framework on top of it. And I'm not sure who would set those standards. And that's, I guess that's part of what worries me. Um, had this been something, say, in the EHR space, would have you let the vendors decide what that would have looked like? Um, is this happening right now in the platform space? You know, like, are the engineers at Facebook deciding this? Does it need to get out of hand and then government regulation steps in? Because what you're describing, it isn't something that, you know, the people at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, they're not like, yeah, let's go solve that problem. Um, so I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure, but I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I would like that to happen, but I would also be happy enough with some of the more mundane tracking pieces. Cause I yeah. think that you were talking about some analytics thing that could be optimized. And I'm like, dude, let's just try to figure out if we can keep track of what's going on. Yeah. That, that's where I, that's where my head starts too, by the way, is just to your point about transparency and our earlier point about knowledge bases, like what is an insight? Yeah. Let's just start there. Yeah. Can we agree on, is it a report? Is it a dashboard? Is, is there categories of insights? And then how long does it take typically to get an insight? Yeah. Is it different at the federal or the state or the regional level? What's the cost of an insight? You know, I mean, it's super, super, you know, tactical and, and mundane and, and process boring kind of stuff. But as we're building out our knowledge and we're in these, we're looking at these, you know, the gray paper space and we're kind of building out systems. I'm really intrigued on who starts trying, like who starts saying how much it actually costs. So on the advisory committee on data for evidence building, I've been chairing the technical infrastructure subcommittee and we are supposed to be thinking about what could be, what should be explored. And I'm an economist and I'm like a former bureaucrat. And so I was like, how much is that going to cost? Who's going to pay for that? How are you going to keep that running? And they're like, stay in your lane. That's not what you're supposed to be looking at. And it was so hard because there are some things that are like, wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's let's talk about this wonderful thing. But meanwhile, my brain is like, you're never going to have that one or you'll have that wonderful thing for six months, but then no one's going to have the money to keep it, like to sustain it. So I I hear you. Like, what are the ways that you can get that normalized as part of the conversation? You know, I think that for better or worse, some of the blockchain stuff is like, it really has people looking at the energy utilization. And so, you know, there are dollar costs and then kind of our psychic costs about that. Um, right. But that was something, it took time for that to happen. And so maybe that we just need to observe this long enough for some of these other considerations to be important enough to measure. Yeah, that's a great point. Like no one was really, there wasn't as much talking about the impact uh, energy has in in platform space until blockchain started eating eating up the energy market. And then, you know, and Ethereum just had the the conversion over to proof of uh, stake for proof of work. So th- there really is potential for change. Okay, cool. Well, you didn't say that you think it's completely impossible and I should never think about it ever again. So Keep that's going to give me hope. Figure I will hold out. my tendril of hope. Yeah, we'll th- that'll be next episode. We'll, we'll come back at you next episode. Like, <laughs> <don't worry>. You <laughs> can figure it out and then you can share back. But wait, you, so I brought up, I brought up fight and then you just brought up, what was the word? Impatience. Frustration. Frustration. Frustration and impatience go hand in hand. Um, and then I think that for another time that we should talk about fear, because to me that would be like <laughs> the other piece that's brought in here. What do you what are you what are you afraid of? What do you assume? I think that of? like can we dab? Yeah, dab, we totally in you, fear? you can't. Yes, we can double in fear. Be, I'm, I'm afraid if we don't talk about it now, we won't get to it. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. No, it's a, I think that yeah. getting people to really and this this comes back, Aaron, whenever we talk about privacy enhancing technologies, are you going to get people to adopt them because you scare them? Or, you know, like what, what are your tactics here? Uh, and, right. you know, similarly, when you talk about data management, 
it may be incredibly efficient to amass the data and have an integrated data system. Uh, and a lot of people that have integrated data systems may want, may not want to discuss a federated data model uh, because they've already invested so much in the other. And so what do you do you need to talk about the fear of a honeypot, the fear of these breaches? Oh. You know, and then there are other, you know, another part of fear is the fear of people's data being misused, even with the privacy protection. Like I think that culturally and politically, we've got a lot of work ahead of us to get people on board with broader use of their data. But those are just yeah, my, some of my little touch points of yeah. fear. Yeah, it's like there's plenty of fear to go around, but it's not always in the right place. <laughs> I'm like, you should be afraid. Just this other place is where you should be afraid. Um, one one of the interesting things that I found is I thought at first when we were advancing our advocacy efforts for privacy enhancing technologies uh, that that it would I would there would be a benefit to say oh look you're afraid of all these things and this helps with that and yeah. I haven't seen people go oh thank God yeah. our privacy and security fears are unlaid now let's put in PET that's just not the case yep. it's not the case at all I think what what I have seen work though is people are are very um, they're very uh, personally focused. Like they have a personal uh, mission to solve problems or help those that they're working with to advance, um, you know, equity for good. And they also have personal goals to not run a, a foul of FIP, uh, FERPA and HIPAA and 42 CFR. And once you can allay those fears, I've seen that work. Yeah. And so strangely, when I talk about a big, you know, all the ways that the, the cryptographic, you know, mechanisms help protect their data, that doesn't work. But if I'm like, look, you're not, it's going to meet your compliance and security standards. They're like, oh, great. And then they don't even ask why or how, right? I mean, someone does, like a governance person will ask a question or two, maybe a security person. But it's so much easier whenever I talk about it like more simply. And this is back to your earlier point about the use cases, yeah. being clear and honest, you know, not hand-waving things because there is problems there. But actually, okay, so this, this dovetails into a follow-on question because one of the most challenging questions to answer then is around safety, right? You know, five safes is a great model. We all love it. Um, when we talk about how safe a project or data is, and for example, privacy enhancing technology gets you there, but there's no, there's not a, it's a spectrum, right? Right. And so on one hand, especially when you're advocating for this and you're a provider of this technology, it's like, I want to go, oh, it's, it's, it's probably 10 times safer than what you're using today. Almost certainly it's very safe. But it's not perfectly right. safe because nothing, but then I want to go, but nothing is, right? So, oh, we're not going to share data. Well, that's actually not perfectly safe. Are you connected to the internet? So I guess how do you walk that tightrope of being honest, being transparent, lifting the value up that's huge in many instances, but also like not oversigned so that people are like, oh, well, my data would never be compromised. Right. No, I think that, that this is really the challenge. And I think this is where you need the the honest storyteller tellers that are going to come out and yeah. say mm -hmm. this is what this is what can be done but also while being very blunt that there is no perfectly safe way of releasing your data you know like it's it's yeah. there's always going to be some amount of risk that is accepted for doing anything so it's getting people to even acknowledge that what they're doing is risky but a lot of times that can backfire yeah. as well. <laughs> well, then this is a good kind of as we're wrapping here in this last couple of minutes, Amy, that we talked about fear, we talked about frustration and spite. And I want to know, you know, in this space, what's giving you hope right now? Well, it's conversations like these. It's groups like IPDLN. It is uh, the efforts that you see in networks like AISP, NNIP, there are so many different groups that are active in the space. And then there are others that come along and are active. And that can be the court modernization folks at Pew Charitable Trust. It can be the people trying to get an, a more equitable, you know, dealing with legacies of racism in our healthcare system, like the people at Robert Wood Johnson. It's figuring out how these groups are trying to really advance. They may not know that they're working toward common purpose. And I think that that's where more of us need to introduce them to each other and be like, 
hey, you're you're actually part of this. We're all marching in the same direction. Meet your friends, meet new friends. Mm -hmm. And so I think the opportunity to connect across the networks that I'm fortunate enough to be in, that is gives me hope and I find it very energizing. Big thanks to Dr. Amy O'Hara for spending some time with us today, joining us in a super energizing conversation. And we are so excited to be able to give as many shout outs and, and share with our network about the upcoming 2024 IPDLN conference in Chicago. Any takeaways that you want to share from the interview? Absolutely. It just really resonated with me, the idea of more conversation, more nuanced conversation and education around privacy enhancing technologies, the importance of social license and ensuring that what you're doing is really what the community that you're working within is doing. And then similarities across challenges, both at the community, uh, local level and the state and federal levels. Absolutely. And speaking of those conversations, again, we, this in the spirit of gratitude, you know, we're so thankful that we get connected with so many amazing people. We can't wait to continue to share more of these stories with you all. So be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. 